You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Corey Zhu, who is using Django and Python to power placecard.me, which is a service that lets you create printable place cards. Corey, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to start things off by introducing yourself and letting us know a little bit more about what a place card is and what your service does? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, my name is Corey. I'm a sort of software developer and aspiring entrepreneur, I guess. Um, and yeah, place cards are the things um, when back when people used to meet up in person and hold events like weddings, um, sometimes they would uh, use these sort of like cards on a table to tell their guests uh, where to sit or to help them find their seats. And um, Place Card Me was a is a website that I that I built and, and maintain that lets people sort of create those very easily, um, and so they they can. Um, log into the site, they just like upload their guest list as an Excel file or just kind of paste in as text. And then in a few clicks, uh, they can download a, a digital template that um, lets them print out those cards at home. And and so people use it, used to use it <laughs> uh, for weddings and, and events and other things um, um, as sort of like a cost savings do-it-yourself uh, option. Okay. Yeah. I would imagine uh, your business probably took a little hit about the <laughs> yeah about i would say about 95 percent of my revenue sort of just disappeared overnight um which was uh which was unfortunate although it's um it's been an interesting run and it's it's starting to trickle back now this we're recording this now in uh sort of uh late may and i'm starting to slowly see an uptick of of traffic and and uh purchases on the site again nice yeah, the gears are starting to move. So was this a side project that you just started on your own? Yeah, yeah. So um, basically I had a uh, job at a sort of like a mid small to medium-sized social uh, enterprise uh, for a really long time. And I decided to take a break from that job. So I went on sabbatical. And during my sabbatical, I kind of thought it would be fun to, to launch side projects and try and sort of make websites on the internet that made money. Um, and so I spent six months doing that. Uh, Place Card Me was, was sort of the first big thing that I worked on um, and that came out of that. And uh, and then after the sabbatical, I went back to my job part-time, um, but maintained it as a side project and, and have been doing lots of other side projects as well. Nice. So you mentioned this was the first site of maybe possibly many. It, did this entire like MVP of Place Card Me take the six months or did you work on other sites as well? <laughs> um, well, yeah, no, it, it didn't. It, the MVP took probably um, a week or two to make. Um, but the the part that took the most time was sort of figuring out how to get it out into the world and um, doing things like search engine optimization and these other, um, these other things to actually sort of get traffic. Um, and so in the sort of like, you know, developer entrepreneur community they talk about how building building the app is actually the easy part um and then sort of like the, the marketing and the getting it out into the world is is the part where you really spend a lot of your time yeah absolutely but uh going back to what you said about a week or two like what kind of cheat codes do you have enabled to get a site up like that in a week 
<laughs> well, I've, I mean, I mean, it it wasn't my first rodeo, I guess. Um, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I had had a lot of experience building web applications, and um, and so I had you know pretty good starting points. Um, and I was using uh, the site is built on Django, um, and Django is quite nice because it comes with a lot of stuff sort of included. Um, so, you know, if you if you start with a blank Django project, you've already got sort of like you know sixty or seventy percent of of the way towards um, towards building your app, and then and then you just sort of drop in uh, the the custom pieces that you need. Uh, so that that was a big help as well. Right. So you're taking advantage of things like the Django admin and users and, and all that stuff? To some extent, yeah. Um, although um, for this site specifically, not not even that much actually. One of the um, usability decisions I made was that I didn't want people to have to create accounts. Um, so I, I ended up not even using the Django uh, auth system except for my own sort of back back of house uh, admin functionality and same with the admin side. Um, but even just sort of, you know, the ORM and um, the, the view and template stuff, um, I guess maybe my perception is skewed because I've been working in, in Django for so long that it just, it seems, uh, it seems like it's all easy and built in. Um, but, but it's, it's possible that's, that's sort of like a biased perspective just, just because of how familiar I am with it. Right. So would you say that Familiarity is what made you pick Django in the end, or did you ever look at possibly using something else as an alternative? Um, I briefly considered it uh, because I'm always interested in learning new things. Um, but but yeah, no, definitely familiarity was was the selling point for me. And um, I heard once that uh, on every new project, you should pick exactly one new piece of technology to learn. I, I read or someone told me that somewhere and it, it always rang true for me um, because most of what you want to do, like you want to be using the boring stuff that you know how to do so you can you can move quickly. Um, and for me on PlaceCardMe, the, the new piece of tech that I used was on the front end. Okay. And yeah, we'll definitely get into that new tech on the front end in a second now. But just to give some context about the site, like before all of this Corona craziness, uh, came about like what was a typical month for you in terms of traffic like not revenue numbers but like how many visitors and things like that oh um you know traffic is i track revenue more closely than i tracked uh traffic actually and and uh i am i am sort of like part of this like open startups movement so i'm, I'm happy to talk about revenue so the um the revenue was in the like sort of like two thousand dollars a month range and that represented i, I would sell templates for eight dollars each and there was also a free offering um and so i guess that would represent i guess around so two, 250 people paying for it which probably translates to like you know maybe uh i think probably like four or five times that many people actually used it successfully and then in terms of traffic it was probably like another four or five times um so if I had to guess, it was, you know, at, at its peak, it was, I would go on Google Analytics and it would, you know, there'd be like, sort of like five or six people at any given time um, using the site. So, wow, man. Yeah, that's, that's really impressive to get to the point where you can make 2000 a month on a side project. Like, congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, no, it, it definitely, uh, you know, it, it was a very slow uh, 
you know, growth over time. Um, but I was, I'm, I'm still surprised sort of where it got to eventually in terms of, in terms of those numbers. So you mentioned this app MVP was created in a week or two. Have you done a lot of hacking around on that? Like adding new features that user wants like over time? Yeah, definitely. Um, although it's slowed down over time as well. Um, the nice, the nice thing about the project is, is, you know, because they're just downloading a digital template um it, it basically runs itself and, and apart from the occasional like customer support thing there's I never, I never have to work on it and so i only work on it when i feel like it and when i think there's there's good reason to but i've i've done a lot just sort of it's a mix of um design and uh development work i guess so like one thing i do is i just i add templates to the site so you can kind of like choose from from these different you know, templates kind of like if you went on Etsy or if you went to like a printing store. Um, so I, I sort of find these, you know, open source designs that I like or, or creative commons designs and then, um, you know, modify them and add them as, as card templates. And then I also added, a, you know, over time I added a bunch of, of features, uh, you know, different card layouts, you know, customizations, changing, changing fonts and colors and, um, and stuff like that. And eventually I added a, a user account thing. So then um, people could actually create accounts on the site and sort of have a have a history of all the cards they've made and, and things like that. So I, I would typically like spend, you know, anywhere from sort of five to 20 hours a month on on the site, just, just kind of doing what sounded interesting or, or responding to feedback that I would get from, from people who were using that. Very cool. Basically living the dream, right? A couple hours a month and uh, the money keeps coming in. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. I mean, not, not quite enough to, to quit my day job, um, but, but maybe one day. So going back to the app, uh, I did poke around a little bit on the site before this call. And I noticed that you can do things like provide a list of, of guests that you have. And then it kind of just gets merged into all these different uh, place cards. So like uh, on the back end, how do people upload that list? Is it like a new line separated list of names or a CSV file? Yeah, exactly. It's it's either of those things. Um, so there's a text box on the site that you just you could type into. And that that's how people usually uh, do it first, because it's... I, you know, I pre-populate it with some names and, um, so you just kind of click a button and you, you see how the thing works and it's, it's very easy to modify and, and sort of like, like see, see what you can do. Um, and then I think most people who are using it for, for weddings and stuff eventually like have, have a spreadsheet. Like, I, I don't know if you've planned a wedding, but, um, it ends up being quite a lot of work and usually you have a spreadsheet that has all your guests and, and if you're sort of like assigning them to tables, then, then you have that table assignments in there as well. Um, and then, so they, they're, they're usually just uploading an Excel file or a CSV um, and, it, and the site supports both of those options. Okay. So maybe uh, we can take a look at something like your requirements.txt file in terms of, you don't need to go through it line by line, but do you recall any interesting packages that you used, like either Python or Django specific to help you build this project? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Let me, let me take a quick look. Um, I mean, it's, it's relatively light. Uh, so, I mean, PyXL, I guess is what I, what I used for the, uh, Excel parsing and, and, uh, you know, that upload functionality and converting that into, um, the guest list from there. It's almost like, it's, it's really almost nothing else. Um, there's, you know, there's Stripe for, uh, the handling the payment side of things. There's um, 
Sentry for error tracking, and there's uh, some stuff that I use just on the like on the blog, like like uh, pigments or pigments. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, and and Markdown libraries, um, just so I can I can write blog posts in Markdown and and have uh, code highlighting and other stuff. But yeah, I mean the requ the requirements file is like ten lines long or something. Um, the not the requir the requirements dot in file, I should say, which is I use pip tools, which is a, a sort of a library that sits on top of pip that um, manages your dependencies uh, a little bit better for you. Right. And uh, I have not used that one personally, but when you say better, I mean, does it give you something like a proper lock file? So you can version lock all of your dependencies instead of just the top level ones without having to pip freeze. Not exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, so so basically, and and I've used another one too that that does have that lock file, um, and I think was sort of modeled after npm. This pip, pip tools um, basically has an input file, so you have like a requirements.in file where you list your core dependencies. And then it compiles a requirements.txt file with the pinned versions. Um, and along with that pinning process, it also um, sort of annotates them according to like which, which line or library in the requirements.in file uh, needed to call, needed that library essentially. And so the, the nice thing about that as opposed to like a requirements.txt is just like if you like, uh, Oftentimes, these libraries have dependencies, and then you, you remove one of the primary dependencies, but you don't actually realize that you could also remove these three other things that, that were only needed because you were using that, that primary library. And so it, it kind of manages that process for you as well as, um, you know, make, has, has some nice uh, workflows around sort of like upgrading individual packages and things like that. Nice. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop a link to that in the show notes. Now, going back to your app over here. Would you classify your app as a monolithic app, or do you have a couple of microservices broken out? It's pretty monolithic. Um, yeah, it's a single it's a single code base. Um, there's uh, sort of like a little bit of a front end back end um, split on sort of the UI heavy pages. So like the the page where the the user goes in and and sort of like does all the upload and customizations of of their place cards. Like that that's all sort of a single page app, and so that's that's kind of client server architecture, but um, I don't have any microservices or, or anything like that. Right. So the, the majority of the app then, besides that one single page app thing, is just server rendered templates using Django templates, but like sprinkles of JavaScript? Yeah, exactly. And uh, going back to what you said before about picking that one new tech, which uh, library did you decide to use on the front end? Um, I used React. So this was sort of like three years ago, I guess, when... Uh, React was the was the cool kid on the block, and and I think Vue was sort of just starting to get some traction, but seemed a little too early to to mess around with it. And so, um, so yeah, that was how I picked React, and um, and it's it's currently using like sort of an older version of React that doesn't doesn't use hooks and um, and some of that newer stuff. Just because of sort of I haven't had to modify it much since I I originally wrote it. Three years ago. Would you say overall though you're happy with your decision to make it split up like that and then using React? Oh, definitely. Yeah, the amount of complexity on a front end to, to not use some kind of JavaScript framework, I think, would be would have been really um, 
really painful. And I, I've overall had a, had a really positive experience with React, um, although I don't have a ton to compare it to. Um, I Most of the things I used uh, on the front end before React were things like jQuery and Backbone and Knockout and sort of that that first or second wave of, of JavaScript frameworks. And I, I haven't had a chance to um, to play with some of the, the newer ones that have been coming out. Well, Backbone and Knockout, two terms I haven't heard in a while, but it's so weird when it comes to Knockout. Like, I still remember almost exactly what their homepage looked like. Like, they had those sunbeams coming out, like their logo. <laughs> Going back to the front end a bit, you know, I didn't get a chance to actually create uh, a place card or try it out, but like this required a full front end application because what, like people, can they just like overlay text wherever they want on the predefined graphics that you give them? Uh, no, I, I would love to add that. Um, and that, I've, that's always been sort of where I wanted to take the product, but, but right now, no, each, so each predefined template sort of has uh, a default position for where your guest names go and where your table names go. Um, and that's sort of just like hard coded into the, into the template itself. Yeah. So I, I guess that makes sense, right? It's like your target audience is someone who's planning a wedding or an event. Like they're not graphical designers wanting like pixel perfect text placement on, on the card. You want to kind of make it easy as possible for them, pick the font, you know, whatever words they want, and then they're off to the races, right? Yeah, exactly. That was the whole, that was the whole idea is like, and, and even some of the, some of the like marketing and taglines and stuff in the beginning were just like, you know, you'll be done with this in, in five minutes or something like that. Um, so definitely wanted to optimize for sort of just like making it super easy for people, um, going light on an initial feature set. Um, and I, you know, I did plan to build out more customizable stuff down the road and, and it just never, um, never made it to the top of the roadmap. Right. Yeah. I like it. Sounds better than like, well, by the way, make sure you have a protractor just to get started, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Although it is sort of embarrassing and, and some of that stuff, like it, a lot of it is configurable in the database, but I haven't exposed it in the front end. So sometimes I'll get an email because um, another another piece of functionality on the site is that people can upload their own um, images that to use as, as the card templates. But sometimes... You know, the site just sort of guesses where you want to put the text and doesn't let them move it. And so sometimes people will email me and say, you know, can I move this? And then I'll say, well, no, you can't, but I can log in and move it for you. And um, so that that happened a fair amount as oh, well. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't even think about people wanting to supply their own images. Very cool. So when it comes to that type of thing where someone's uploading their own images like that, what is that, what is that built in part of Django, Django storage? Or something else media yeah i think it's called um yeah so exactly so um django has this like sort of media framework or i don't know what you want to call it but you can essentially just attach files to um models and then you specify how they get stored um and i i haven't had the requirement to um to do anything fancy there so those those images are actually all just stored on the file system of of my um, VPS, my my server. Um, although it's, I think it's quite simple to to configure Django to to save those to S3 or to some um, you know sort of cloud based object storage. Right, and we'll get to your VPS in soon enough. But for now, you mentioned databases, so maybe now's a good time to maybe go into the rest of your tech stack. So, like, which database do you use? Are you using Docker? Are you using Celery and Redis? Things like that? Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, I use uh, Postgres as the database. I think that's sort of the, the default database that most of the Django world um, tends to use. 
uh, I like it. I've never really had any any problems with it. Um, I've also on on my own projects, I've never really had to get into um, any of the fancy um, parts of it. Although I know it can do tons of really cool, powerful things if if you needed to. Um, and then I don't use Docker, uh, so the the site is just sort of um, it's running uh, in a process managed by. Um, like it's it's G Unicorn, I guess, is running the um, is running the Django server, and then it's proxied by Nginx. Um, I use Redis as a cache. Uh, I don't use. I'm trying to think if Celery is used for anything in that project. I don't think it is because um, there's no real need for any background tasks or processing. Okay, so when it came to figuring out what things to cache, do you want to just go over like your thought process on? How that came about? Um, you know, I, I actually don't think I cache hardly anything. Um, I mean, the site is so lightweight. I mean, it's literally like the model is, you know, a session with like a hundred names in it. So it's, it's, uh, there haven't been any performance issues really. Uh, and, um, I haven't, yeah, I haven't had, had to really cache anything. Um, but I, I, yeah, I have read a setup and, I, I do use it to cache uh, stuff on other projects, but but I don't actually think it's doing much. Okay. So when you say other projects, then do you just have multiple apps running on that same VPS? Then? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have like uh, it's amazing actually. I have like four or five uh, different production applications running on a single sort of like four gigabyte uh, VPS. As for running those separate apps on that on that single server, do you just use the same database instance for all of them? And then they each have their own separate database? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. I, 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 haven't, uh, I haven't deliberately used different database instances, although um, I did, some of the projects did require like one or two newer features in, in Postgres. So at, at some point I had to install Postgres 10 and then um, I think I think one or two of the projects I never actually bothered migrating over. So I think I have a Postgres nine and a Postgres ten both running. Um, most of the projects are are sharing the same Postgres ten instance in different databases, and then and then I think one or two of them are using the Postgres nine still. Okay. So rewinding back to what you mentioned before about using Gunicorn and Nginx, did you do any comparisons with Gunicorn versus Uwiski? Uh, like, how did you come about to using that one? Um, no, I didn't. I didn't do any performance testing or anything like that. Um, in my day job, uh, we used. I mean, we we had a a big production Django application with sort of at this point now um, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of users, and we had the same setup. We just used uh, Nginx proxying to G Unicorn, and so I just sort of said, "Well, that seems to work," and and I just did the same thing for for all these apps. Yeah, it's a really good combo. I use the same one in my projects as well. I mean, I happen to use Flask instead of Django, but it's still Gunicorn is the main event there for the web server. Now, going back to your Nginx setup then, do you have Nginx serving all of your static files and also dealing with HTTPS as well? Yeah, exactly. So each site just sort of has its own config. It's uh, mapped by uh, domain, um, like by URL essentially. And then they just have their own static file folders and they point to different processes on the back end, which are all running on different ports, uh, just on localhost, basically. Now, when it comes to the SSL certs, are you using Let's Encrypt or something else? Yeah, I'm using I'm using Let's Encrypt. Awesome service, right? Oh, it's amazing. It's so good. I can't believe that people used to like pay for 
certificates from bots and Verisign and whoever else. Long list, that's for sure. <laughs> so you mentioned all of this is sitting up on one VPS, four gigs of RAM. Uh, which cloud provider do you use for this? Uh, I use Linode, although not more as a as an artifact of of again sort of the time in which I set up the server as as opposed to necessarily thinking that that's that's the best choice. Although you know I've I've been very happy with them overall. Um, it's cost effective. They've they've had very good support. Um, so I I would recommend them. Uh, although I think these days uh, I think DigitalOcean uh, tends tends to be sort of in favor for the for the VPS. Right. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Like I'm in the DO camp only because I started using them like basically like, I don't know, six months or a year after they started offering their service. So it's one of those things, like the reason you're using Linode, you've been using them for so long and they work great. So DO is kind of like the same thing they've been around. They work great, but I think both of them together, you know, in their own individual ways are amazing services. I'm really happy that both of them exist. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially uh, it's beneficial for us, right? Because if we have two really, really good products to choose from, then the price goes down, we get better specs, like everybody wins. Yeah, for sure. Com- competition and, and free markets are uh, sometimes great. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, going back to your VPS, you mentioned four gigs of RAM. Uh, do you know like the number of CPU cores you get on that box or no? Like offhand? Uh, off the top of my head, I'm not sure. My guess is, is 8 or 16. Okay. It's only actually two CPUs, which is hilarious. Uh, big difference from 16. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know. Um, Sometimes I'm surprised that all this stuff actually runs with no problem on on that server, um, but yeah, no, I pay I pay twenty dollars a month for the VPS and then I pay five dollars a month for backups. Oh wow, yeah, so that's like a fantastic deal, right? Especially since you said you're running multiple sites on this one server. Yeah, it's, it works. It works great for me. I've I've been very happy. Yep. So when it came to setting up the VPS, which base operating system did you pick? Ubuntu. Um, I guess version 16 at this point, uh, although I should probably upgrade to 18. Right. Or even now, 2004 just came out a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I, I heard that. Although I generally don't upgrade until at least like six months in, just because I, I tend to not trust new released stuff, even, even if it's vetted. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way for sure. When it comes to the next long-term release, I always wait for the first point release. Although I try to get all of my you know, scripts and things like that to work with the new one, but I just don't flip it over to my live production sites. Yeah, that's a good idea. But maybe speaking about that then, like, how did you set up this server? Did you just SSH in by hand and, and run some commands, follow the tutorial? Did you use Ansible, anything like that? Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's sort of evolved over time. Uh, definitely the very first thing I set up was was SSHing in and, and running commands and trying to remember to, to write everything down in a text file and just in case I needed to do it again or couldn't remember how to do it the second time. Um, and then o- over time that that evolved to like higher and higher levels of, of automation. Um, and so na- now I use Ansible for, um, for new applications, although um, that, that VPS has enough sort of legacy stuff running on it that um, Oftentimes, my my Ansible scripts don't don't always work. So um, sometimes I'm still I'm still going in and doing uh, doing stuff by hand. Right. That actually sounds like the perfect use case for why using Ansible is really nice, right? Because you build up that server over you know a year or two or three, just running commands in there, and then fast forward to current day, and you're like, I have no idea on earth what was run on the server in the past. Like it's very hard to not even understand like how to recreate that server from scratch again. Oh, totally. <laughs> 
yeah, is that what I drove would... you to use Ansible at some point? Um, no, honestly, it was um, it was doing more and more of these and and some of them on sort of like client projects because I also I also do some freelancing, um, but you know, just kind of repeating the same, the same setup process over and over again and, and realizing that I was, um, I was doing by hand the exact things that, that Ansible does and makes easy for you. Um, and so, uh, so I eventually bit the bullet and sort of, uh, learned enough Ansible to, to get away with it. Right. Yeah. No, I'm a huge fan of Ansible. I use it on, uh, many, many, many projects over the years. Good stuff. Yeah, it's amazing. Although the, I find it like it's such a high barrier to entry. For, I found, and so like like once you have a functional Ansible setup, it's amazing. But but it it's a really long. I found it to be a, like a pretty long, you know, period before you get that reward of like oh my god, it, it works and now everything is magic. Um, but it, you know, and I found the the debugging cycles can be really long, especially if you are sort of like destroying and rebuilding um, VMs a lot. Um, so I, I have some gripes with it, although I, I agree that, that once you have a, a functional set of tooling with it, that it's amazing. Yeah, it's one of those things like once it clicks, then it's like the best thing ever, but getting to that point, it takes some effort. Yeah, and I it took me years to, to sort of get over that hump. Um, so I guess one of the cool things, though, about you know configuration management and and Ansible, there's kind of no shortcuts. Like it forces you to break things down into like little bite-sized segments, right? Like I don't want to go too deep into the woods on Ansible, but like the concept of roles, right? It's like these things. It's like okay, I have one to manage SSH, another for my firewall rules, another for installing uh, Postgres or whatever. Like you just get these you know natural breakdowns of of how to set the server up. Yeah, for sure. So going back to Linode a bit, uh, do they have anything in their UI that kind of helps you figure out like the health of your server, like logging and metrics and reporting and alerts, stuff like that? Yeah, they do. Um, they they have uh, alerts set up, so I get an email whenever there's sort of like a long CPU spike or um, or. I'm not sure what other things trigger it. That's that's the main one I've I've encountered, um, and they have they have sort of a dashboard where you can go in and see sort of the basic you know memory, CPU, um, disk, that type of thing. Um, I, I I can't say that I. I appreciate the alerts, and and I always go and look in and try to figure out what's going on there. Um, I don't I don't use the the sort of uh, graphs and stuff that they have on their dashboard very often. I I'm I'm more of an old school like run in and run htop type of person. Right, and also it's probably one of those things. At least for me, I'm not sure about you. Where it's like I'm not just logging in and checking the stats of everything every day, like three times a day. It's like very reactive, right? It's like if I get that alarm or alert email, or I notice like a customer says the site is down or, you know, something like that, then uh, I react to that by looking at things. Exactly. Yeah. And, and most of that, most of that stuff, I have alerts set up at a higher level. So I have like Sentry set up for all my, my sort of like Python exceptions and error logging and things like that. I have, um, I use status cake, I guess, for uptime monitoring. Um, and, uh, Trying to think if there's anything else, but the, but those are the big. I mean, those are the big things I care about. Are sort of like, what is the from from my users and my customers' perspective? Like, is the site functioning? Like, you know, if if memory is fine but load times, or sorry, if memory is like spiking but load times are working and the site's functioning fine, then like, I don't necessarily need to go in and intervene. Right now, maybe since we're on the topic of maybe external services that you've hooked up 
to your site. Uh, do you send any emails out from your site to customers or no? I do, yeah. Um, actually, that's, what, that's one of the libraries I didn't mention, but I use, I use Django AnyMail for that, um, and I connect it to um, two things. One is uh, MailChimp for marketing emails, and the other is... Um, what do I use for email? Uh, <laughs> SendGrid, Postmark, Mailgun? Mailgun. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yep. Those are, I don't know, the top three transactional email services, but they're pretty popular. Yeah. Did you go through like a, a research phase on that or did you just pick the one because you used it in the past? Um, I chose Mailgun because it was free at the time and I can't remember if... I evaluated, I definitely evaluated Postmark and I really liked the product and I, I like Wildbit as a company, the company that makes it. Um, but I think at the time it was more expensive and I, I can't remember if I evaluated SendGrid. But that this was also three years ago um, and and Mailgun has recently dropped their free tier so now I'm paying them like $1.50 a month which I suppose I can tolerate. Yeah. So did they grandfather you into the free plan for like an extended period of time? Because now three years later is pretty long, but like for a year or something like that? Uh, well, I, I don't actually know when they sort of got rid of the free tier um, publicly, but I know that, that I lost the free tier sort of in the last couple of months. Yeah, I'm not sure offhand when that switch was made. Now, going back to some other SaaS tools you mentioned using Stripe to handle all of the payments, have you ever had any requests from customers for PayPal support? Um, once in a blue moon, um, and and I just do it manually. Um, so I I just send them to my my sort of business PayPal and and have them run it, and then I I manually unlock their place cards for them. Um, it, it was never big enough that I felt the need to build that out. Yeah, it sounds like a very good plan, right? One of those things where it's implementing multiple payment gateways is like a, a tremendous amount of work, uh, and if it's only a couple of people here and there, it's no problem. Yeah. To do it manually. I'm a big believer in sort of like do do work when you feel the pain, but not before. Like kind of like the Yagni, like you aren't going to need it philosophy. Um, so maybe this leads into this question for you. So when it came to implementing Stripe, did you end up using their new payment intense API, like the SCA stuff, or are you using the older APIs? Um, on PlaceCard Me, I'm using the... Actually, I updated to the new APIs um, because I was doing some work with uh, Stripe for another project and I wanted to understand them. Um, so I am, I am now migrated onto the, to the new stuff. So how was that migration process for you? It was fine. I mean, their, their developer docs are usually very good um, and uh, they have good you know, testing tools and everything else. So um, it was pretty seamless. Nice. Yeah, I struggled a bit trying to migrate to that, but I was also doing it at a time where I forget the exact date of when their docs got drastically, drastically improved for the better. I think it was in something like November or December 2019. But when I tried to do it, it was more during like the summer of 2019 where like right after the APIs were created. Yeah, not a fun experience, but glad to hear that it's, it's getting better with docs wise. Okay, cool. Yeah, I did, I did it in January, so I must have, I must have gotten the good docs. Right. You dodged some bullets there for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to your app, running on one VPS, you're the sole developer on the project. Do you want to maybe want to walk us through what your deployment process looks like? So, you know, hacking away on the code base, you want to push a new build, walk us through it, please. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, you know, I, I push, I get push. Um, I use GitLab again because, uh, 
when I set up the project, it was it was before GitHub had had changed to have unlimited private repos, and I'm cheap. Uh, so yeah, I push to GitLab, and then um, I have a Fabric script. So Fabric is a is like a I don't know. It's it's what people use to deploy Django sites like ten years ago, <laughs> um, and and I think you know some people still use it today, including me. Um, but so I I just run Fab deploy essentially and then and then that script logs into the site and pulls the latest code down from git and then runs sort of the database migrations and uh, updates the static assets and and does a few other things and then and then reloads the server okay so live on your server you're running uh, I'm running it from my computer and then so fabric is like a way to do remote SSH commands so I run it from my dev box and then it does a bunch. It runs a bunch of commands on the server and then um, comes back. Right. So those three commands are probably like the pip install, the database migration, and the static files. Not necessarily in that order. Uh, yeah, and then restarting the processes. Oh yeah, I don't think we had a chance to talk about that one. Do you use System D for that, or some type of other process manager? Uh, I use Supervisor, uh, Supervisor D, um, and and again, it's sort of a, a lot of my technology decisions are, are based on sort of the thing that we use at, um, at my company. Uh, so I, I didn't take a close look at, at system D versus supervisor versus, uh, whatever else the options are out there. Ones? Yeah. <laughs> so what would you say your average downtime is then each time you do uh, a deploy? Oh, seconds, less, probably less, feels like less than seconds. Um, yeah, I mean, because the database is small, so like even if there's database migrations, um, the database migrations run before the process restarts, um, but usually they're backwards compatible, um, and so the downtime is really just the the little blip when GUnicorn is restarting, and uh, and I think it's you know it's usually very quick. Yeah, I've noticed. So I I typically do use Docker, so it takes a little bit longer for a container to restart because there's a little bit more overhead with that. But yeah, just Unicorn straight up without Docker. Yeah, I'm so jealous of the reload speed because it really could be less than a second. It's like half of a second. It's amazingly fast, even on a decently sized project. Yeah, yeah. And then like on on bigger projects, like um, you know, you can you can also you can run multiple Unicorn workers, and then you can do sort of like a rolling restart and um, have your proxy uh sort of dynamically like turn them off and turn them on so that you can have zero downtime deploys so that's that's a setup that i'm familiar with but i've never my, my sites don't get enough traffic that uh, i needed to set that up for for any of my side projects right yeah even on like a, a moderately decent site that gets traffic i mean if you have like two or three seconds of downtime and you're deploying i don't know a couple of times a week even it's not the end of the world for that like unless you're making something insanely mission critical, in which case you'd be load balanced across multiple servers. You know, it's like, I always feel like in the one server deploy case, a tiny bit of downtime per deploy is not the end of the world. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. So how do you deal with things like secret management with fab, like API keys? Yeah. Um, so pro probably not as well as I should. Um, so the, the way we do it is uh, Django has uh, you know this like settings.py thing that where you sort of customize your project specific stuff and then um so each app has its own sort of not checked in to git production settings file and 
and the secrets are just in that file. Um, so, you know, the database passwords and whatever else. I, I have recently started using environment variables for this, although um, I don't totally know enough about security to know what the different sort of risk profiles are of environment variables versus, you know, in, in a Python file on the server. I have the sense that, like, if someone's in your server and has access to your file system, you're just host anyway, so maybe it's not so important. Um, right. But, yeah, that's that's how I do it now. And, and for the most part, those files are Ansible managed when I'm using Ansible, but, um, but on all my old projects, I just log in and update them by hand. Right. Yeah. And what you said makes sense. I mean, it's like if you have a .env file on disk or a settings.py file on disk, it's like, well, it's sitting there on disk anyways. Like it's the same security. Yeah. That, that's my intuition as well. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, you know, Ansible kind of controls that. Is Ansible a part of your deployments or no? I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of in a confusing space right now where I'm, I'm using Ansible for some things. I'm sort of my, moving away from Fabric. Um, and so again, on, on my newest projects, uh, Ansible deploys, can deploy all that stuff, including, uh, including just like normal code deploys. Although I, I haven't yet done enough tooling to to make Ansible as as seamless and fast as Fabric. So I, I often have like an Ansible version that does fancier stuff, including updating like the Nginx config and the supervisor config and the settings and all that stuff. But then I have sort of a, a Fabric deploy script that um, that only updates the code and does sort of the, the, the mission critical stuff that you mentioned. And I usually use the Fabric one because it takes like, you know, 10 seconds instead of 45 seconds or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. If I just have one complaint about Ansible, it's that it is not the fastest thing in the world. Uh, and especially when it comes to things like, like it's great for configuring your server, like the things that you would run to spin up like a brand new box and get it into a specific state. But for things like app deployment, where you kind of want to see, you know, the bits and in, in bops moving in real time, like, you know, as something executes on your server, like compiling the assets or whatever, like you want to be able to see that in real time, line by line, as that program runs. But with Ansible, the way just inherently it works, right? You can run a task against the server, but you have to wait until that task is done before you get the output of it. So you kind of like twiddling your thumbs for 30 seconds with no output, and you kind of don't know like what's going on during that 30 seconds. Have you noticed the same? Um, I haven't run into that specific pain point, but I but philosophically, I totally agree with you. Like I I love Ansible for for bootstrapping like a new a new server, um, but then for the steady state stuff, I find it's it's maybe like a little bit overkill. So we talked a little bit about how you have like alarms and stuff set up, but how do you uh, plan for some disasters? Like, do you do database backups and maybe even back up the things that are on S3? Well, right now you mentioned that it's on your file system, but do you back up user uploads to S3 or no? Uh, I do not back up uh, anything to S3. The, um, the entire VM is backed up by Linode, um, and that's my primary disaster recovery strategy. So, so basically everything on the, on the VM, everything is on the VM, including, including those static files and, and the databases and everything else. Um, and then... Uh, I pay for the Linode backup so that if something does happen, I can uh, create a fresh VM with with the existing uh, state of the VM. Right. And just for listeners out there, do you want to maybe just give like a TLDR and how they manage that backup? Like, do they just take a snapshot of the ISO and then you can just build a new box from that? That's my understanding. Yeah. I um, 
should probably do a, a dry run and not just assume that it works as advertised. Um, but I embarrassingly have not uh, done that. Right. Well, it kind of goes back to like those alerting things, right? It's like you have your thing set up for six months and things never go down. So you wonder if they even work. And, and the same way with like these snapshots, right? It's like you hope it works. Never had to use it, but yeah. But what's the frequency of that backup, by the way? Um, you can configure it, but I think it's daily uh, is, is how I have mine set up. And then I think maybe they also do like a weekly thing. Um, so you kind of get, you get seven days worth and then um, some number of weeks uh, as well. Okay. So do you need to pay for the storage of all of those backups or is that just rolled into like whatever their cost is for that feature? I, it's just rolled in. Yeah. So it's for the size of VM that I have, it's just an additional $5 a month and then they, they sort of manage the whole thing. Right. Yeah, I think on the DO side, it's something like an extra 20% of whatever your, the VPS costs. That's that's what you pay for the backup feature. Okay, that makes sense. That Sounds like it's probably similar on yours as well. Yeah, it's 25% of mine, so uh, that sounds pretty close. We need more capitalism here. Drive down the prices. <laughs> so we're kind of wrapping up here. What would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app? Ah, uh, Best tips and lessons learned. I mean, I... I think the one that I kind of already mentioned, but just sort of like not over engineering anything, not um, not spending too much time uh, agonizing over over technology choices that you make or anything anything like that, um, but sort of like addressing problems when when they are painful is is maybe the first thing that comes to mind. Um, just like I think a lot of uh, engineers like to do things really perfectly um but oftentimes that's not the optimal use of your of your time and energy and and the sort of like 80 percent solution that takes 10 percent of the time is actually perfectly good for the next you know five years or whatever um so i think that's that's a big one um you know the the using boring technologies and one one new thing i think is good um because if you do everything new then you're not going to be fast and you're not going to really confidently be able to do production grade stuff. Um, but if you never learn anything new, then you're going to stagnate and you're not going to, um, you know, keep up with technology and stuff. So I, I really like that, that sort of like best practice of, of using mostly boring technology, but always picking one new thing to learn, whether it's, whether it's a new database, a new web framework, a new front end framework, a new CSS framework, or, or, you know, whatever you want to do. Um, so those are the, those are the first two things that come to mind. Yeah. Those are two, uh, really, really good tips, right? Because it's like, it's so easy to get like held up right on the new hotness. It's like, well, people are saying I should use this, but should I use this? And then it's like, you just spin your wheels and you never write code because you're just stuck like chasing the hotness, not getting any coding done. Yeah, totally. And it is fun. Like if, if your only goal is to have fun and play with technology, then, um, then go nuts. But if your goal is to, you know, build a valuable website or a business or, or whatever it may be, um, then, then I think it's not the best, the best thing to do. Right. I can't remember who said it in the podcast a couple of episodes back that it was like that exact point where it's like, you need to make that distinction. Like, right? do you want to learn new technology or are you building a product? Like, that's a very important question to ask yourself. Yeah. 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 For sure. So Corey, thanks a lot for coming on the running in production podcast. It was really great having you on. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This was, it was fun, uh, fun chatting about this stuff. Yep. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, any projects you're working on, things like that? 
Um, yeah, you can you can find me. I'm czu on Twitter. That's czue, um, and I sort of tweet very publicly, m- mostly about um, sort of the business side of of these side projects. Although I, I sometimes go into the tech stuff as well, uh, which I also find fun. And then um, coryzu.com is my website. C o r y z u e dot com, and and it's got links there for for anything else if you want to catch up or. Um, find out what I'm up to. Cool. Yeah, no, I checked out your site before you came on and it looked like you even had something like a SaaS template building tool for Django. Do you want to close off things with uh, maybe talking about that one? Yeah, sure. Um, that is that is my, my latest and, and maybe greatest project, I'll say. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's a project called uh, SaaS Pegasus, um, which is a riff on uh, the Django pony uh, is is an old mascot of, of Django, and and so the idea is that it's it's like the Django pony but with wings, uh, which is a little silly, but but uh, it is what it is. But yeah, so the idea behind Pegasus is that it's a um, it's sort of like a Django starter project on steroids, and so instead of just starting with the admin site and and you know user functionality and sort of like a basic scaffolding it provides um nice base ui it it gives you sort of like a bunch of user management stuff profiles and password reset and all that it comes with uh teams if you want to have sort of like a multi-tenant team-based applications and it comes with stripe integrations with um, subscriptions and payments out of the box. And so the idea is basically if, if you're interested in starting a, um, a project like uh, PlaceCardMe, um, then you could use this template instead of, instead of starting with a, a basic Django project. And, and I will caveat that, that it, is a, it is not open source, it is a paid, um, it is a paid product. Ah, so going back to the beginning, like that cheat code to get that MVP out in a week, did you use this to build PlaceCardMe or no? Uh, no, uh, because it didn't exist yet. Um, but after I built PlaceCardMe and, and two or three other projects, I realized that I kept sort of doing a lot of the same things over and over again. And, and um, I felt like there should be a cheat code. <laughs> and so um, so I decided to uh, create the cheat code that I wish I had had. And, and now I use it for, for all my projects. And it's um, it really is... Uh, I mean, this this will sound sort of salesy or, or something, um, but it really it really does make uh, spinning up a new project much much faster. Um, and so I've I've been getting a lot of a lot of value from it, and um, and uh, other people have as well. Cool. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop a link to that in the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.